Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, where we can find the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Because the first verse tells us of Matthew chapter 5 that he went up into a mountain and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Matthew chapter 5, this will be the fifth sermon that I've preached to you from this passage. Many more to come. We want to take one lesson at a time and learn what Jesus Christ taught his disciples. Amen. We take up today at verse 27. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. I'll read down through verse 32. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth said this. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is absolute and final truth. It's our job to humble ourselves before it and to apply it to our lives. Amen. We live in a generation that violates these six verses probably more than any generation that's ever existed in the history of the world by the extent and ease and availability of sexual sins to the whole populace. There are temptations and means of sinning and violating these six verses that other generations couldn't even imagine. You have a television in your house, which most other generations didn't have. You have Internet access in most houses that other generations didn't have. There are ways to sin and violate these six verses that other generations didn't have. They had their means, but we have more. And so I say to you, God has chosen to put you in a generation that violates these six verses more than most or all, what will you do with that privilege or responsibility that God's given us? Here's the answer. May the Lord bless us to follow these verses and to understand them and to have him incline our hearts to keep them and to make us go in the way of these commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount introduced his subject in verses 1 through 20 where he explained, I am not coming to change the law of Moses. 
I'm coming to explain it correctly and to deliver it from the corruptions of the Pharisees. The Pharisees took the law of God and narrowed it down so much that anybody could keep the Ten Commandments. A Pharisee said, unless you've taken a butcher knife and rammed it through someone's sternum and killed them, you're safe with the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. But the Lord Jesus Christ taught us last Sunday morning through the previous six verses that even to have unjustified anger in your heart without a cause, which is to be unjustified anger, was to break the Sixth Commandment. To name call was to break the Sixth Commandment, as he taught us. Now he's dealing with the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The Pharisees had narrowed that commandment down to the overt act of seducing a woman that you're not married to, another man's wife, breaking down all the inhibitions that exist between people that aren't married, and having full-blown intimacy with another person. And the Lord Jesus, the, the Pharisees had narrowed it down to just that act, so that many could read Exodus 20 and verse 14, the seventh commandment, and say, well, I've never committed adultery, and go on to the eighth commandment. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to open that seventh commandment up right. as widely as he opened the sixth commandment up. Are you ready to hear it? Pray for me that I'll be ready to teach it. I will never apologize for the word of God. It is absolutely true and righteous altogether. It is pure in every word that it has to offer. And it's only to be preached one way. Preach the word. It is terrible. And for my role in not maintaining and enforcing the proper obedience to these six verses in the past, I apologize. And I've apologized to the Lord long before this. We have been foolish and carnal and wicked in the past. But this is the word of the Lord, and it's going to be preached the way it's supposed to be preached. Truth is truth. No father has a right to lay aside his rod and let his children escape in sin because that father knows he's a sinner. I'm thankful I have the Apostle Paul who said that when he understood the commandment, thou shalt not lust, it wrought in him all manner of concupiscence. But when I read the Apostle Paul dealing with sexual matters, I don't see him blanching, cringing, or compromising. So, the truth is the truth. So here comes the fire and the hammer of God's Word. Let it burn up our chaff and let it purify our wheat. And may we gather it into our garners and live the righteous lives that this describes against our wicked generation. Jesus said... If we neglect to do or to teach the least of his commandments, we're the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, if our righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and they were meticulous about the law of God, if it doesn't exceed their righteousness, we'll in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So here we go with a subject that's important. Now, I love the inspired word of God, and I hope you do. I love every angle of it, every aspect of it, every word of it. 
I know that the body of the Sermon on the Mount began at verse 21. I know his first subject that he took up was our relationships. And I trust him and the rest of the Word of God that tells me that's our number one problem area in life. Grudges, bitterness, name-calling, unjustified anger, all the things we went over last Sunday. There was just a few of them, wasn't there? And there's an extensive outline on the website that will remind you of all that we went over last Sunday. That's probably the number one problem area in life, is relationships, loving each other as we should. But what would be number two? Do you trust the Lord here? I trust Him. When I read the rest of Scripture... And when we live in the year 2005, I think number two is probably the number two area of trouble. Some of you might argue with me and say number two is number one. But I trust the Lord in this. Number two is huge. And it's huge for us in 2005. And I'm going to get all of you. Because the Lord's going to get all of you. Scribes and Pharisees love to take that and say, I'd never commit adultery on my husband. Or I would never commit adultery on my wife. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to prove that probably every single one of us are not only a one-time adulterer, but whoremongers. Once I get done opening this with the rest of the Word of God and applying it to our lives. And it's, these are not my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here and the words of the Holy Spirit every other place we're going to turn. The Pharisees narrow Scripture so that you can keep it easily. The Lord Jesus Christ broadens Scripture so that it's more difficult to keep it. But if we trust the one that broadens it, he'll give us the grace and the strength to be able to keep it. And if you are hurt this morning, what do you know about hurt? If you're hurt this morning, let me tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. He had more women following him than you have fantasized about. He never sinned one time in thought, word, or deed. And I love my Savior, Jesus Christ. He made Joseph look like a whoremonger. He had women kissing his feet and weeping on his feet and wiping his feet with the hairs of their head. That is pretty intimate. But the Lord Jesus Christ never had a wicked thought. And he didn't have a wife at home especially one as pretty as yours. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the love of a woman would have been very valuable. You say, don't talk like that about my Savior. Oh, I'm going to talk like that about your Savior because I want to exalt his righteousness. I'm not saying anything wicked about him. I'm exalting his righteousness. If you think he went through life with his hands clasped and a seeing-eye dog because he didn't have eyeballs, and every other part of a man's anatomy, and every part of a man's desires, you have totally mistaken the concept of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He is a glorious Redeemer. He is a wonderful High Priest. He is a High Priest that was touched with all the temptations that you have ever had sexually, yet without sin. Praise His great and glorious name. So when he writes these words, just think about who's speaking these words. He is the creator of sex, love, and marriage. He's the creator of the man and the woman. 
and he lived in this world, he was followed by women, and he never sinned. He didn't even get close to sinning. There was not a shadow of turning in him. And yes, I misused that verse, but you know my point. Let's look at these verses and trust the Lord that gave them to us, and let's humble ourselves before them. Verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Jesus is condemning the tradition of the Jewish elders. He did not say, It is written, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. I must make sure you understand these words. We cannot have errors thinking Jesus changed the law of Moses. He just opened it back up to where God had always intended it. And the Old Testament taught the same doctrine he's going to give us right here on both points. On all three points. There's three points. There's three pairs of verses. For those of you that like the three pairs of verses uh, last time, there's three pairs of verses right here. There's two, pair, there's, there's two verses that are teaching mental adultery. There's two verses on how you don't make a provision for the flesh. And there's two verses on legalized adultery by abusing divorce laws. Okay. In verse 27, the Lord Jesus Christ is correcting the Pharisees' abuse of the seventh commandment because they had narrowed it down to the act only. If you had not actually snuck into another woman's house and actually snuck into her bed and actually consummated the most intimate relationship that two people can have, if you had not done that, then you were free from the seventh commandment. That's why Paul could say that I was blameless in the law as a Pharisee. Because they had narrowed the law down so much, most everyone was blameless. But when the Lord Jesus Christ opens the law back up, everyone's condemned. They all need a Savior. And we all deserve to go to hell. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ correcting Pharisees in verse 27, not changing the law of Moses. Many things could be said about that, and it'll be in the outline because I must go on. Verse 28, But I say unto you, These men that are preaching to you, this is Jesus speaking, these men that are teaching you, these seminary graduates, these doctors of the law, these scribes and Pharisees, these men that are esteemed by the whole nation, these men that have the large churches, these men that teach the sermons everyone wants to hear, they don't know what they're talking about on the subject of the seventh commandment. That's what the Lord was saying. But I say, I say something unto you that is entirely different from what they teach. They're teaching that if you haven't committed the actual act, you're not an adulterer. You're free from the seventh commandment. You have obeyed. Exodus 20 and verse 14. You are a good Joe. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Wow. Now you know the verse is there. So this isn't news to you. But just imagine if you were a Jew sitting on that hillside and you had heard the Pharisees teach it all your life and now Jesus Christ says, but I say unto you. And he didn't apologize to these teachers. He didn't excuse those teachers. He just said they were wrong. This is what they teach. This is what I teach. And it's different. It's very different. And the Pharisees were the most conservative Baptists and fundamentalists of that day. The Pharisees could quote the Bible inside and out, frontwards and backwards. They could tell you the number of letters in the books. 
the number of letters in a chapter. They knew the Bible inside and out. That didn't impress Jesus Christ one bit because they didn't understand it. He said to them many times, ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. When they knew them inside and out. They knew them by heart. But Jesus said, ye err, not knowing the scriptures. This is the righteous standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say unto you that you have broken the seventh commandment. You have violated Exodus 20 and verse 14. If you look on a woman and let that look turn into the lust for her and think about committing adultery with her. That is strong. That's the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our religion. We want to be Bible Christians. What does the Bible tell us about following Jesus Christ? This is what it tells us. That's a high standard. That's a very high standard. It condemns every man. And every man who says he's not condemned by this one is a liar. Is it fair? Is that a reasonable religion? Is that a reasonable statement that Jesus Christ made? If you're thinking about it, wanting it, and desiring it in your heart, the only reason you haven't done it is because you lack opportunity or you're afraid of getting in trouble. Jesus Christ knows that. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, doesn't he? Yes. And you know what he says about it? If you've got the thought and intent in your heart, it's only because I haven't allowed the circumstances to come about or you would do it. You would have already done it. You're an adulterer if you have it even in your heart. So that's mental adultery. I'm going to come back to it in verse 28 that Jesus condemned. I thank God that he did not blanch or cringe when dealing with sex. He just blasted away. This is what you've been taught about sex, love, and marriage. But this is what I say. What the conservative, the most conservative sect, the most conservative denomination of the Jews' religion, God's people, what they teach is wrong. What I'm teaching you is right. This is what I expect. This is what you have to have in your life if you have any claim or expect to have any claim on the kingdom of heaven. This is how you have to live. Mental adultery is equal to physical adultery in the sight of God and in the all-seeing eyes and discerning of all spirits, thoughts, and intents, and motives of all men by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's adultery. This wasn't a new application. Jesus was just bringing the word of God back to the word of God from the Jews' tradition. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, three verses after the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What is the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Oh, oh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So if you were, if you humbled yourself before God, you would know that desiring your neighbor's wife was really breaking two of them, if you'd have figured that out. But now there were men in the Bible that had figured that out by the inspiration of God and the whole and the righteous lives. Let's look at Job chapter thirty one. Job thirty one. Job knew it. Job knew the Sermon on the Mount a couple thousand years before the Sermon on the Mount was preached. Now how did he know it? He knew it by the teaching of the Lord himself. And what was the first verse we read from Psalm 119, verse 33? Teach me, O Lord. Because the Lord is able to teach you on the inside, and it's a whole lot easier to keep the commandments of God when he teaches you on the inside. And a whole lot easier is an understatement. 
Teaching from the outside is impossible to try to change the nature of a person from the outside. You may hinder them from getting into the overt act, but you'll never stop them from thinking it. So the Lord's got to teach us on the inside. He can change the way we think, even about this most powerful of subjects that does grab our minds forcefully. Let's look at Job. Look what he said. Job 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. When did Job make that covenant with his eyes? When he was married. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I've made a covenant that I'm going to look only upon my wife and upon no other. Why should I think, have any sexual thoughts about a maid? Job thought about his maids all the time. He made sure that they were all clothed properly, fed properly, given raises when they deserved it, protected from any harm. Job thought about his maids, but he never thought about them with any sexual desire or intent because he had made a covenant with his eyes. And when we all get married, we've all made that covenant that we're not going to look or think upon any other but the one we're marrying. We've made that covenant too. It's just a shame that most marriage covenants are so weak they don't say anything. We tried, we've tried to correct that in this church. Let's go to verse 9. Job said in verse 9, If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, heart adultery, if any woman has ensnared my heart, if mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind unto another, and let others bow down upon her. For this is an heinous crime. Yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction, and would root out all mine increase. That's what Job thought about mental adultery, which is, which is stated in verse 9. If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or I laid wait at my neighbor's door. He didn't even say getting through it. He said laid wait at it. He said, if I've been that wicked to have those kind of thoughts, then another man ought to have my wife, and this is a horrible sin that ought to be judged by the judges, and it would destroy my whole family tree. Job knew the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. It's all consistent from one end to the other. It doesn't contradict itself. God's people have always lived the same way. Their form of worship may have changed, but they had the same standard of holiness and righteousness because God doesn't change in holiness and righteousness. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25, Solomon warned his son, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. That's how Job said, If I let a woman deceive me by a woman, deceiving him into thinking that he could commit such a horrible sin by her eyes. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. There is heart adultery short of the actual act, because once you get it in your heart, it's going to come out if the Lord lets the circumstances arise where it could come out. So it was known in the Bible. Look at 23, chapter 23 of the book of Proverbs. You know the subject of Sex, love, and marriage is brought up a lot in the book of Proverbs because Solomon was trying to take care of his son, and so he dealt with the issues that would affect him the most. In Proverbs chapter 23, he's teaching his son against drinking too much. And he says in verse 33, If you drink too much, son, 
thine eyes shall behold strange women. Because alcohol depresses the central nervous system of the human body and breaks down your judgment. It breaks down your self-discipline. And if you drink too much, it'll relax your inhibitions and your eyes will start wandering around wherever you're sitting and spot every strange woman that's in your range of vision. And you'll start looking at her without the same restraint that you had before you drank too much. That's what the, the lesson is here. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. You lose control over your thoughts, words, and eyes because of drinking too much. Here's a, a verse telling us about the problem. Let's come back to Matthew 5. I'll remind you of Second Peter 2.14, where false teachers are said to, to have to create a lascivious religion where they have eyes full of adultery. 2 Peter 2.14 Remember, I preached on that passage. They promised them liberty. They promised them liberty. See, a Pharisee would promise you liberty. As long as you haven't done it, you've obeyed the seventh commandment. They promised liberty, but Jesus says, I say unto you, if you've fought it, you've broken it, there is no liberty for mental adultery. There's no liberty for fantasies about committing a sexual sin with someone. I condemn it. But they have eyes full of adultery because they limit it to the act, not to the eyes, not to the fantasies, not to the hearts. They don't apply it. And so they have eyes full of adultery and God's going to judge them. They promise men liberty. And see, there's very few pulpits that are going to preach like I'm preaching right now. And it's not because I'm something special. Everyone in here knows I'm not something special. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm going to preach the special word of God the way it ought to be preached. And it's not being preached in our nation anymore the way it ought to be preached. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. And he comes down with his hammer and anvil on all of us about our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts, men and women. That is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. No, it isn't. I have more to say. James chapter 1 tells us that do not err, my beloved brethren, on this point. God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. What does lust mean? I want. Every man is drawn away by his I want. Then when lust hath conceived, it thinks of a way to do it, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. That's where sin comes from. It doesn't come from God, even when he arranges circumstances of temptations to try us. It comes from us. And it starts in the heart. And the lesson was, lust in the heart I want is the beginning of all sin. I want. I will be like the Most High. It started with the devil, and it runs into every one of us. I want. I deserve a better wife than I've got. I deserve more wives than I've got. I deserve a better husband than I'm stuck with. And so your mind starts to, I want. And then when I want, can think of a way to get something, try something, taste something that God has forbidden. It results in sin, and sin brings death. That's James chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, when he understood by the Spirit of God the commandment, Thou shalt not lust, he realized, I've been keeping all the commandments, but in my heart I've been breaking them all. He said in Romans chapter 7, 
When I understood the commandment, thou shalt not lust, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. What does the word concupiscence mean? Sexual desires. Paul said, when I understood God's word, thou shalt not lust, it showed me, it revealed to me that I had a heart that was sinful because I had had and allowed all sorts of sexual desires that God doesn't approve of. I hadn't done them, but I had thought them, and I thought I was alive in righteousness standing before God, but sin revived, and I died. He, he said, I was totally condemned because the commandment, thou shalt not lust, got me. And Matthew 5.28 gets every man in here, and every woman as well. Matthew 5.28 gets us because Jesus said, if you've thought it in your heart, you've done it, and you're guilty of the seventh commandment. First John chapter 2 and verse 16 tells us this. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three come together for a sexual sin. This is all that's in the world. These are the three kinds of temptations God sends our way. He does not put those things in us. The lusts are ours. And I didn't mean that God puts anything in us, but when God allows us to face a temptation, or when the devil comes after us to get us to sin, here are the three approaches. The lust of the flesh. That is your desire for sexual gratification. That is your, your physical drive, your physical need, your physical desire for sexual, physical pleasure. The lust of the flesh. Then there is the lust of the eyes. You see an object, especially men. You see a poorly dressed woman who wants to be fashionable, who wants to look good in public. You see her, and the combination of the need of your flesh and the desire of your flesh matches up with something you see, and all of a sudden you've got an object for the lust of the flesh to work on because you've just seen something. So the lust of the eyes come in. And then the pride of life for both men and women is the excitement and the fulfillment and joy of the chase. And the world makes all three of these wonderful. The world makes all three wonderful. The world makes the lust of your flesh. They've got more vitamins and Viagra and other drugs to help you stimulate that desire even beyond what God gave. And you shouldn't even, you shouldn't have to limit that desire at all. The world just totally bent satisfying every lust of the flesh. Then the lust of the eyes, the world bombards us with billboards, magazines, television, and internet to show us images that arouse that lust of the flesh in the hearts of every man. And then they, they show us movies, movie after movie, movie after movie, movie after movie, with wonderful soundtracks, showing the glory and the joy and the excitement of the chase. We live in a horrible time. That's why those things have to be cut off. And I think the Lord's going to have something to do about the words cut off. I think He is. I think He is. 1 John 2.16 The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Can you subdue the lust of the flesh? Yes. The Bible would call it the natural use of the woman meaning your wife, Romans chapter 1. Can you help the lust of the eyes? Yes. Keep away from your sight the things that tempt you to sin. David said, I will put no wicked thing before mine eyes. Right. How about the pride of life? 
humble yourself down to the ground and make yourself a servant for people, always wanting to give them the best rather than what you can get from anyone. I'm getting into my application. I didn't intend to yet. Oh. Um, verse 30, Matthew 29. That would be one way to get through quickly is to skip verse 29, but I'm not going to. Matthew 5, 29. Okay. The Lord has told us in 27 and 28, mental adultery is the same as the act. Doesn't matter to me. All you've missed is the opportunity. You would have done it. I know you would have done it. You don't care what I've said in the seventh commandment. You're rebelling against me. You love sin more than you love righteousness. So we come to 29 and 30, and they help us. The Lord gives us some harsh, cruel, and unusual punishments to save us from the sin of adultery. Now, Job, Job sounded like adultery was a pretty serious crime in Job 31. He said it's a sin that ought to be punished by the judges. What did Solomon call it later in Proverbs chapter 6? Did he say it was a, it starts with H, a heinous sin. What was the punishment for adultery in Israel? Stoning to death, capital punishment. If it's that serious and God hates it that much, then here's what the Lord has to say about us making changes in our lives. And before I read it, there's two kinds of people in here. Spiritually minded, godly people that love to do righteousness at any cost. Currently minded people that buck, fight, resist, and complain about every bit of cost in their life to follow godliness. Jesus said in verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Does Jesus really want us to take our right eyeball and pluck it out and throw it over in the corner? So it would look like a raisin in a few days? The next verse says, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. And cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Does he really want me to cut off my right hand? I use my mouse on my computer with my right hand. My right hand's important. Do you want me to cut it off? Are we supposed to understand a real powerful figure of speech here? Now, is this politically acceptable language? This is kind of harsh. Should children be listening? Should I have rated this sermon? You know, this is an R-rated sermon. No one under 17 allowed without parental accompaniment? Or is this NC-17 or what? Here's violence. Plucking out your right eye. You know, some of the sickos today would probably do it. Children not being raised in homes where they're taught anything. But what are we supposed to understand by these words? The Lord uses very harsh examples of ripping out your right eye. Your right eye is very important to you. You right-handed people, have you ever tried to shoot a gun without your right eye? A rifle? Your right eye is very dear and very precious to you. If the smallest speck of dust gets in your right eye, you get upset about it. You blink away, you're wiping, you're looking in a mirror, you're asking for somebody to spot that little speck, or if one of your eyelashes gets in your eye, you care about that eye. It's dear to you. 
Everything that you enjoy in life by sight is your right eye. Your right hand. Well, this thing is only half the value of this one. This thing is so uncoordinated. You give me a basketball with this one, I'd end up scoring the other team's goal. This one's crazy. My right hand is what counts. My right hand is skilled. I'm not ambidextrous. And I'm certainly not left-handed. I just had to put that in there for some of you. My right hand. Because the Bible speaks about your right hand because most people are right-handed. Very practical. Very useful. I need it. I think I need it. Jesus said, what's better for you? To go to heaven because you've lived a holy life. This is not how you earn your way to heaven, but I'm not even going to deal with the exception. If you can't figure it out and don't know it by now, you don't deserve it tomorrow. If you want to go to heaven by living a holy and righteous life with me, is it important enough to you that you would do it like this? Is it important enough to you that you would miss your right eye? That's what he said in those two verses. Jesus Christ, in matters of sexual temptation, is telling us to take very drastic measures. And I'm thankful that there are men and women that will take drastic measures. Zacchaeus took a a drastic financial measure when he popped down out of that sycamore tree. He said, if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. I'll take one half of whatever's left over and give it to the poor. Just to make sure, in case I forgot someone. Jesus said today, salvations, come to this house. And I want to tell every single one of you, and it's the men that must listen to this first. And I'll get the women before we get done. Men, we must lead our homes and cut off things that are dear and precious to us like our eyes and cut off things that are dear and practical to us like our right hands if we're going to be serious about this commandment. And the stupidest excuse that I can think of right now is women wanting to look good. And I'm going to get to you in a second. Why can't you give up trying to look seductive in public. That is so obnoxious to the nose of God and to all of us. Why don't you want to help us and why don't you want to pursue righteousness? I'm thankful in the Bible there were women that were harlots and they turned their lives upside down for the cause of Jesus Christ. They begged and wept at the feet of Jesus for their foolishness in the way they had lived and the Lord forgave them. The Bible tells us that you get into the kingdom of heaven by violence. The violence take it, the violent take it by force. Is this pretty forceful? If I, like, I'm not going to do it for you, but if I was to reach up here and pluck out my right eye and throw it over there in the corner and splat it against that wall, would that be violent act? If I was to bring a saw out right now, a little band saw off my right hand in front of you, would it get your attention that I was a pretty violent person? This is what the Lord is saying. If there's something in your life that is tempting you toward Mental adultery. Rip it out and cut it off. It's better for you to go to heaven having lived a holy life than to have had that thing on earth no matter how precious or practical it was. That's what those two verses mean. The publicans and the harlots went in the kingdom of God before the scribes and the Pharisees. They were were willing to do drastic things. There's only one way to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a religion of 
It's not a religion of moderation. The moderation is things of the world. The moderation is not in following Jesus Christ. The religion of Jesus Christ is extreme. Look at the language. These are not my words. These are not my verses. These are the Lord's verses, and I want to represent them with the full authority, power, and extent that he gave them. They're acts of violence, because you need to take things out of your life that you want. Do you want your right eyeball? Do you want your right hand? Yes. They're dear. They're precious to us. But we've got to cut them off. Godly men would be willing to give up television. That doesn't mean every single second of it, but most of it. Because that television is the devil's pulpit. There is not a thing that comes through the television that is not designed by the devil to corrupt your morality. Not one program, and I don't mean any, there's no exceptions. I don't care about the History Channel. The History Channel is bad as every other channel. It, it just requires a little bit less effort for you to blow out their foolishness. But when you're watching the History Channel, there is never a word said about the God of history. Because everything that happens in the History Channel that they show you is by the sovereign government of God, and they never tell you that. There are no men in charge of history. There is no conspiracy that has ever altered history one iota. Not a jot or a tittle. God alters history. And there are unseen angels that they've never shown on any History Channel that are manipulating governments. There's devils and there's angels doing it, but nothing, none of that's ever shown. Okay, I can't preach about the television right now, but the television is a vehicle that previous generations never had, and it brings nude women into our homes. It brings the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It glorifies committing adultery. It glorifies fornication. It shows scantily clad women performing in the boldest, most forward ways in every program. There's commercials all the time. We must guard and hate that thing if we're going to be anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. Godly men would give up television, movies, internet freedom, socializing with certain women that tempt them, every man knows, reading certain magazines, co-ed gyms, listening to certain music, working in certain offices or working certain jobs, eating at certain restaurants where they have scantily clad hostesses or waitresses, reading certain advertisements, driving past certain billboards. They would get rid of anything that they could think of that leads them to have sexual thoughts outside of what God allows. Because Jesus said that's to break the seventh commandment. This is the application for the year 2005 of what men ought to do to pluck out their right eye and cut off their right hand. Godly women will give up television, movies, internet freedom, socializing with certain men, reading certain magazines, co-ed gyms, listening to certain music, working in certain offices, eating at certain restaurants, reading certain novels, emailing certain men, taking phone calls from certain men, or they'll get rid of anything else that would tempt them to marital or sexual sin. That would be their right hand and their right eye. That's what it means. I am sorry, and it grieves me, and I wish I was more like David so that the tears would run down mine eyes at how our nation has forsaken the law of God, and there's very few preachers that will get up and say what 29 and 30 mean. 29 and 30 mean is taking things out of your life that you want. Taking things out of your life that you like. Taking things out of your life that you've developed a habit. You're using them. I'm, I'm, 
I'm pretty habitually addicted to my right hand. You know, I use it most every day. You know, and the Lord says, cut it off! Because it's better. He's telling us what's profitable for us. Get rid of those things because it's better for you to go to heaven than to have them through life. You, you, listen, I'm 48 years old. Let's say I make it to 70. I'm sorry. I'm a little too excited. Let's say I make it to 70. So I've got 22 years left. If I was to go 22 years without going to a co-ed gym, but I went to heaven, would it be worth it? Would it be worth it? Well, what if I said, I don't know if there's a heaven or not. What a pagan. I love the co-ed gym. I love their equipment. Yeah, right. I'll buy your equipment. Now, there are some gyms that are different. Now, let's, every man, I'm not going to deal with exceptions. If you, if you have a problem with exceptions and you're so weak mentally, you don't deserve to hear preaching because, see, Jesus didn't give any. Right. He never gave them. Right. Because exceptions, if you have a problem with exceptions, your mind is so small, it wouldn't help you if I gave them to you. Because the next time I mentioned it, you would have forgotten the list already. I'm talking about righteous people who know how to reason in the Word of God. Amen. The Lord says one thing's more profitable than the other. Can I give up Sports Illustrated? Well, I hope I can give up the February issue of Sports Illustrated that has the skimpiest bikinis on planet Earth and the most beautiful models. I hope I can give that up. What about the rest of Sports Illustrated? Every man's got to ask himself, can you read Sports Illustrated and not be tempted by the alluring advertisements that are in that magazine? And on and on and on we could go. I just want you to think. Jesus said, look for your right eye. Does your right eye offend thee? What leads you... What it means when it says, does your right eye offend thee or does your right hand offend thee? What in your life is leading you to break the seventh commandment? What in your life is leading to mental adultery? What in your life causes you to have sexual thoughts that God doesn't approve of? Get rid of those things. That's what it means. Now let's go to verse 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. It hath been said, Jesus didn't say it is written in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. He said, it has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. This is the Pharisees teaching the tradition of the elders that if you were tired of your wife, just get rid of her legally. You know, keep the law of God and give her a piece of paper saying she's free to be remarried. Then you can go get your other woman. That's what the Pharisees had done, and that's what verse 31 is in there for. It hath been said, it hath been taught in the pulpits of this nation, Jesus said, that all you have to do is make sure you give her a bill of divorcement, you can get rid of your wife, and go get a younger one. But I say unto you, I, ha I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Jesus defied the Pharisees. The Pharisees had taken Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, that does say that if a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, he can put her away, and to put her away he needs to give her a piece of paper saying she's free to be remarried to another man. 
if she's re, if she's remarried to another man, she can never come back to the first man because that kind of wife swapping is an abomination to God. So the Pharisees had come up with marriage for any cause, just like we have in America in the year 2005. I meant divorce for every cause, but you all knew that. Divorce for any cause, divorce for every cause. Matthew 19 tells us that that's what the Pharisees had done with that law, and that's all understood in verse 31 when it hath been said that if you want to get rid of your wife, just divorce her and make sure you give her a piece of paper saying she's free to marry another man. So they were divorcing their wives for any cause. But Jesus said, if you divorce your wife for anything short of fornication, and he gives an extreme single example of a violation of a marriage covenant that is drastic, if you divorce your wife for anything less than fornication, you're committing adultery. That's the subject under consideration. The poor woman woman that you've thrown out there, who still belongs to you in my sight, and she needs to have a husband to support her and take care of her, you're going to force her to commit adultery by remarrying, because every single woman in that situation ordinarily seeks remarriage, just like Ruth, and the man who marries her is going to commit adultery by marrying her, because she's really still belonging to you, because you Pharisees have taken a single passage from Deuteronomy 24 and created a whole big bunch of wife swapping and using divorce courts to justify it. And he doesn't go any farther than that in this passage. Do not try to read into these words specific rules about divorce. All he is saying is, you have taken one passage about divorce that I never intended for you to use it the way you are, and you've created wife swapping and legalized it by giving a bill of divorcement. And I say unto you that your whole mess stinks. That the man doing it's an adulteress, adulterer, the woman who gets divorced is an adulteress when she goes out and remarries, and whoever marries her among your clan of conservative Pharisees is an adulterer as well. So, what what has the Lord taught us? He's taught us that mental adultery is adultery. He's taught us that if you have anything tempting you to mental adultery, get rid of it. He's taught us, don't you dare use the divorce laws to justify getting rid of a woman that hasn't done something very, very, very serious. And while we do believe the mercy principle, the marriage principle, the Sabbath principle, and other principles of God's word, there will be no divorces endorsed in this church for any light or frivolous reasons ever. Not when I'm I'm your pastor. Because you made a commitment to that wife and you're going to keep it. And that wife made a commitment to you, and she's going to keep it. But so those Pharisees were excusing their thoughts, excusing all the things that led them to temptation in their lives, and were excusing divorcing for light and frivolous reasons to get at a new wife. And Jesus condemned it all. Well, how do we apply it? Just like last Sunday, here we go. In a hurry. How do we apply it? Well, we've got to apply it widely. Because the Lord applied it widely. Look what he just did. He said, you don't have to get into bed. You don't have to get clothes off. You can just have it in your thoughts. It can just be triggered by your eyes. Job said, why should I think upon a maid? You might be far from her and you might not have seen her in a week. Mental adultery is adultery in the sight of God. And it's falling far short of the righteous standards he has set for our lives. 
Your body belongs to the Lord. It's not yours. Your body's the Lord's. And I started out with that verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. You've been redeemed with a price. Your body has been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have a right to dress it the way you want to dress it. You don't have a right to use it the way you want to use it. Jesus Christ died for our bodies. That's why there's going to be a resurrection. See, when I die, my, my soul and spirit go directly to heaven. This chunk of clay is just going to go out in a cemetery and feed the worms. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus died for this chunk of clay that's going to go out and feed the worms. And when Jesus Christ comes back, there's going to be some, some tombstones dislodged in some cemeteries. Because that clay is going to be put back together and come flying up out of the ground in perfect obedience to the voice of the Son of God. He died for my body. The Holy Spirit's inhabiting my body. The Holy Spirit of God is in my body. The same Spirit of God that moved upon the face of the waters in the creation of the heavens, the earth, and all things that are in them. I don't have a right to go take my body and attach it to a woman that God hasn't given me a right to. And that's what 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20 is all about. You know how, you know how most Baptists use 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20? Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You can't smoke. You can't smoke. And you know the person that says you can't smoke, they eat two pieces of pie a day, drink three sodas, and eat a bunch of chips at every meal. They're, they're threatening their health far more than the person smoking. It's ridiculous. It's insanity with the Word of God. There isn't smoking within 100 pages of 1 Corinthians 6. There is one issue in 1 Corinthians 6, and it's fornication. Did you get the first two words I started out with this morning in verse 18? Flee smoking. Flee fornication. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Should I join the temple of the Holy Ghost to a harlot? The Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 6. No. You don't have a right to do what you want with your body. You have a responsibility to do what is right with your body. And who defines what is right with your body? The Lord Jesus Christ does that. All your all sexual thoughts that lead toward lust are wrong, are sin, and are a violation of the seventh commandment. To imagine and desire a sexual sin is to commit that sin in the sight of God. Recognizing a beautiful man, women, recognizing a beautiful woman, and admiring her that she's a beautiful woman and having it pass through your mind, that is one beautiful woman. Look at her hair. Look at anything else. That is not sin. That is admiring. That is recognizing beauty that God made, and the Bible's full of it. She was a woman, she was a beautiful woman to look upon. She was a beautiful woman to look upon. But we all know something. There's one thing about admiring a beautiful woman and saying, that's a beautiful woman. And then that admirer can turn to desire in a hurry. And as soon as it turns to desire and say, I want that. I want that. My wife doesn't look that good. I need more. I want that. I want to get that somehow. I'll bet that would be exciting. I want that. That is sin. You have just crossed over into another category. Now, for you women that may not understand the distinction I just made, you are the most lust-filled creatures that's ever walked this earth, so let me help you understand it. When you see a house, and you say, that is a beautiful house, and if I were to say to you, why is it a beautiful house? You would say, because I love the front door, I love the porch, I love the windows, I love the layout, I love the kitchen, and the bath was so nice. Look at you running through all the features of this house, 
have you committed a sin against the Tenth Commandment yet? You just admired something in detail. You just admired something extensively. Did you break the commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house? No. Not until you say, i got to have that. I want that. I'm going to get that. Whatever it takes, I want to live in a house like that. Why isn't my husband working harder to make more money to help me get that house? I'm done with that rabbit trail. I hope that you can understand the difference between admire and desire. I mean, when a man handles a gun, when somebody hands him a beautiful gun, he looks at it, he turns it over, he cocks it, he wants to see it, he sights it. There's no sin yet, but as soon as he says, i got to have that, i got to have that, he becomes discontent with what he does have, and he wants to get that by hook or by crook. That's how we often say it. See, we've passed into a whole other field. You can admire a gun, say, that's a great gun. Wow! I'm glad you got it. Hand it back to him. You know, and I hope that we can say that, wow! You know, that's a beautiful woman. There's an Abigail. There's a Bathsheba. There's a Rebecca. There's a Sarah. There's a Rachel. I'm glad you got her. Pat him on the back. Say, enjoy, brother. The Lord is good. Now, that's totally different than going home and thinking about somebody that you, don't, you aren't married to. I hope you can understand that. Amen. The reason I said that about the women is because I don't like to hear women talking about how they understand how a man's eyes work because they've never figured it out and they never will. And they look at a lot of things and admire them. I mean, what sex are window shoppers? It sure ain't men. That's not what's known in our society. Women are window shoppers. And they're looking at admiring a lot of things, and I hope they're not coveting where they've passed over into, i got to have that. You know, i got to have that, or I need that, or I want that. When we pass over into that, that's a different thing. That's called desire. That's called lust. That's called coveting. That's where the Bible draws the line. We're all going to recognize beautiful things, whether you're a woman or a man. And the Lord's telling us that we cannot put ourselves in a situation where there's anything that draws us into that further category because we're to cut that off, pluck it out, and get it away from us. Right. And we all know those differences. Every man knows those differences. Sin is committed when your mind passes from admire to desire, and it can only take nanoseconds with women. Every man's got to be very careful about that. Sin is committed when you're... But it's impossible to say that a woman's ugly. I hope everybody understands. Sin is committed when your mind starts thinking at all, I want that, I need that, or I will get that. Sin is committed when your mind begins considering situational details for seduction to sin. When you start to plan getting something. Sin is committed when your mind passes from contentment and happiness to bitterness and frustration with the woman or the house or whatever you have. See, that's how you tell. You can tell if you've admired or desired by what it does toward what you've got. Do all of a sudden you resent your car because you just were in one better? Then you've passed over into covetousness because you're no longer content with what God gave you. And when a man becomes bitter or discontent with his wife, it means he's past the line and he's desiring, not admiring. Since the Lord Jesus Christ condemned lustful thoughts and added the illustrations of self-mutilation, it's obviously our responsibility to cut off everything that we can that leads us toward ungodly desire of a woman. Therefore, pornography is absolutely outlawed by the word of God in any way, shape, or form, whether it's severe, drastic, 
triple X rated pornography or subtle so-called innocent pornography in your local newspaper or magazines. May God make, may God convict all of you to be violent in entering the kingdom of heaven by violently tearing things out of your life like the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us. You may have to, you may not be able to look at the newspaper because there's too many advertisements. You may have to change your television viewing habits. But if mental adultery is as bad as the word of God makes it, then we have to cut things off that lead us toward that sin. Therefore, romantic novels for women are wrong. Romantic novels for women are wrong. Why are you reading a romantic novel? Because I enjoy it. Well, I'll tell you why you enjoy it. Because it presents a man that you're not married to and you're never going to be married to. It presents a make-believe man that is perfect in charisma, power, leadership, money, kindness, romance, and everything else. That's your, that's a woman's porno. That's a woman's porn is reading romance novels to get stirred up, triggered. You say, well, I don't get stirred up. Then why do you enjoy it? Why do you enjoy it? It's because you're reading about something make-believe to make you think about how life, how good life could be if you had that. And you're doing the same thing a man does with a picture of a woman and it is not any better. Women are the, women are the most self-righteous when it comes to this subject. But when a woman reads a romance novel and reads all about the personal characteristics of a perfect man that is no different than a man looking at the nude body of a perfect woman who has perfect characteristics. There is no difference. We just happen to like nudity. You just happen to like personality. There is no difference. One isn't better than the other. They're both wrong. Well, what about so-called Christian romance novels? What kind of... What kind of illusionary men do they create? Or is the novel about the woman? For you girls that are reading novels, and every parent and our librarians, the novel should promote the character of the woman, not be talking about the character of the man very much. It's the character of the woman and how she conducts her life. There's more that can be said on that, but I hope that's enough. The Internet is obviously one of the most forbidden sexual pleasures. That, can, that comes into our homes. There's the biggest business on the internet is still by far and away sex, the sex business. Men can go in there and see anything they want with the click of the mouse. Women can go in there and chat with anybody of any sort, of any kind of a man anywhere in the world. Sometimes they're going to get a woman that's pretending they're a man, but that's okay. You know, if you want to go into a chat room, you don't know what you're getting. Half the men are going to be coming out of prison doing it. You know, it's a chat room, but the Internet is horrible in the homes. It's breaking up homes. It's a danger, and it's something that we have to guard with our might and, and our violence. God also condemns, and this is for the young people, any of those forbidden sexual pleasures that husbands and wives have that's short of actual intercourse. What, what is called foreplay, what it used to be called the weird word petting, or any other thing that this society promotes, trying to escape unwanted pregnancies, trying to escape sexually transmitted diseases, trying to avoid the Word of God, those little pleasures are just as outlawed. The Lord knows about them, the Bible addresses them, and they belong to that person's future spouse. They don't belong to you. Defrauding your spouse is adultery in three ways. First, 
you violate your marriage covenant where you promised your spouse unlimited sex. If you didn't understand it that way, it's too bad and it's too late. That's what God intended and that's what he understood. Or she understood. You violate your marriage covenant by not keeping its promises. So it's adultery there. What is adultery? It's breaking your marriage covenant. Number two, you're violating your spouse with enormous pain and suffering for unsatisfied needs, which can be very physically, emotionally, mentally, and psychologically damaging. Jesus dealt with this subject. What should the Ten Commandments would it fall under? Thou shalt have no graven images. It would fall under the Seventh Commandment. Now we hit a different category of person who wants to physically deprive their spouse. You say, well, my spouse has never complained. There's a reason. Complaining is too hard. You're too stubborn. It would, it would violate domestic tranquility. And you should have figured it out a long time ago, especially in this church. Third, you're driving your spouse to commit fornication. Did you see? In Matthew 5.32 that Jesus said, if you divorce a woman for the wrong cause and put her out there single, you're going to force her to commit adultery because she's going to need and want to go get married. See, Jesus understands all those indirect problems that come up when we don't do things his way. So if you deprive your spouse of proper sexual fulfillment, you're driving them to commit adultery. So God considers you the adulterer or the adulteress by driving them to it. Now, men often assume that, this ver- that these verses and this principle only applies to them. Oh, how wrong they are. How wrong they are. A real woman has a greater sex drive than a man. Or gre- Let's put it this way. A real woman has greater sexual capacity than a man. And a man better be thinking about that and better take care of that. When I come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and I see this subject taught in plain language in, in verses 1 through 5, it tells the woman's, rights to the man before it tells the man's rights to the woman. So it's taught in the Word of God. When I read the Song of Solomon, it's the woman that is swearing with a rose and by the hinds of the field that there is no interruption to what her husband is doing to her. She's the one swearing about how good it is and how long she wants it to last. Every spouse should remember, you don't have the authority the claims, the power, or the right to your own body, your spouse has them all. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 7. You owe your spouse when, where, how, and how often they want it. Your thoughts on the matter are not even part of the equation, except when it's by mutual choice for prayer and fasting. The wife hath not power of her own body. This is not me making something up. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. The husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. And when you go read 1 Corinthians 7, each spouse owes to the other spouse how, when, where, and how often they want it. Not how, when, or where, or how often you want it. It's for the other. And that's what the Lord teaches about this subject. Do not say that your your conscience will not allow natural pleasures. There are unnatural things that people do in our society, and they're wrong. There are natural things that men and women do, and they are right. And if your conscience can't handle it, your conscience needs to be educated. It doesn't mean that the thing is forbidden. 
you need to bring your conscience up to level because you have a deformed conscience. I said natural pleasures, not unnatural ones. Do not say my spouse has not complained because they can't complain. It's often too hard for a spouse to go to the one they're married to and say you're not satisfying me, you're not giving me enough. That is too hard. It's the duty of every spouse to take care of the person they're married to and to figure out how often, when, where, and how they want it. Enough on that one. God requires modest clothing on women. Or you are an adulteress. You know, there's two ways you can approach the subject of clothing, women. You can fight it and rebel because you love yourself more than God and other men. Or you can submit and be cheerful because you love God and other men. It's just a matter of your heart. It's a matter of attitude. It's not a matter of liberty. Clothing is not a matter of liberty because the Bible has addressed it very specifically and in detail in both Testaments. This is not something where God hasn't spoken, so if you want to drive a Chevy and I drive a Ford, God doesn't care. God has spoken on this subject. He outlines it, he, he, he says it in the, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Modest apparel. Adorn themselves. He wants you to look good. But he wants you to do it modestly. He wants you to do it so that you're not putting yourself forward, you're not tempting other men. The Old Testament gets very detailed. Try Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 26 this afternoon, where there are 28 garments worn by a woman listed in the passage, and how the women walk, and how they look, and how they hold their neck, because God is very detailed. He talks about ankles, he talks about shoes, he talks about hair, he talks about eyes. He talks about how you walk, how you carry yourself. He talks about how you do your hair, and how you wear different clothing garments. God is very detailed about this, and he cares about it. When Adam and Eve put fig leaves on themselves and made aprons, now an apron doesn't cover very much. God made them coats. God makes a difference on this subject, and I'm asking everyone to help us be holy in the year 2005. And we need the help of you women. I don't like being a closed policeman. I despise it. I wish you women would take care of it because you had holy hearts And I wouldn't have to have spring cleaning every year before the hot weather arrives. Women, your thoughts on modesty don't have a thing to do with it. You don't have a clue. Your thoughts on what is a modest garment, and no, this shouldn't cause anybody a problem, you don't have a clue. When you're talking to yourself like that, shut up. You don't have any idea. That's why you're a woman. That's why you have a husband. That's why you have a father. And that's why you have a pastor. Your thoughts on it don't have anything to do with it. Paul liked meat. Paul liked to eat meat. But do you know what Paul said? If meat would cause my brother to be offended... And women, all your brothers in here have right eyes and right hands. And you are our right ha- eyes and our right hands. This is my brother, Paul. And this is how all women should think. If meat causes my brother to be offended, I will not eat meat as long as the earth stands. That is a holy man. And that is a holy woman that would say the same thing. 
We want you to look attractive. We will, we will get as close. We are not going to look like Mennonites or Amish. I will punish people. I, I, I will enforce against women looking like Amish or Mennonites as much as I enforce against immodest women. Because it is a disgrace to the gospel of Jesus Christ for some of the outfits that Christian women wear in the name of modesty. Do not take me the wrong way. Do not make me unfair. I do not like this part of the job. You push me to it because I have to deal with the men that are offended by your scanty clothing. Your husband's thoughts on the matter have nothing to do with it. Your father's thoughts on the matter have nothing to do with it. Your husband doesn't think that you're that pretty anymore. Your father doesn't think that you're that pretty because you're his dumb little daughter. It's the nature of families. You know how I mean everything I'm saying. I'm asking you to understand how I mean it. Yes, your husband thinks you're attractive. But the nature of sin is the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. When Eve looked around the Garden of Eden, there was only one tree that looked good to eat. Which one was it? Can you believe it? If you put, if you lay out cookies on on the table and say, children, you can have all you want, but don't touch the cookies in the cookie jar, which cookies taste the best? Do we all know? We're sure of it. She's trying to hide from us the real pleasure. Women, your conscience does not know. I know that you put on garments and you turn around the mirror and you look at it and you say, nobody could, nobody's going to think anything about that. You look at shoes. Can you believe it? What a crazy pervert he must be. You know, you look at your hair and you look at different things and you say, how could that bother anybody? You don't know and your husband doesn't know because he lives with you 24-7. And a father doesn't know because you're just his little girl. He'd never have those thoughts towards you. But when you walk in here, there's a whole bunch of right eyes and a whole bunch of right hands. And the you know what I mean by that. There's a whole bunch of other men that look at you differently because you are off limits to them. Keep yourself off limits and don't entice us by any skimpy clothing. And I wish you would all cooperate so that I wouldn't have to make specifics but i'm being pushed by people who want to fight and i will come down with specifics because we're going to have a holy congregation or you can have your own little church or you can go worship anywhere else in greenville where they wear anything someone has to make a difference between the holy and the profane and someone will make that difference A woman that wears provocative clothing in the opinion of the other men in the church. And I will represent that opinion of the other men in the church. Is an accomplice to adultery. She is an adulteress. Women should seek that glorious end of being known first of all for their character. Second of all for their good works. And then for their attractive modest appearance in public. There is a glorious woman that I wish every one of you women could get in your minds. There is a glorious woman that men respect forever. She is gracious, Proverbs 11:16. She has the law of kindness in her mouth. She is holy and righteous and she fears God, and she dresses in silk and purple. 
She knows how to dress, but she is modest, and she is first of all holy. She is first of all fearing the Lord. Then she is gracious. She's kind. And it comes down to what she looks like. The Bible tells us that the meek and quiet spirit of a woman is of great price in the sight of God, and it's of great price in the sight of men as well. I wish every woman could get a hold of that, that that is real beauty. You will turn the heads of more men, good men, godly men, being that woman, than you will dressing like an escort and coming in here. You say, turning heads? Absolutely. I mean, when Abigail, you think that when the virtuous woman went someplace, she turned heads. What a great woman! When Abigail went someplace, don't, we all talk about Abigail to this day. We haven't even seen her. All we know is she looked good and she was a woman of good understanding. And those two things together made a package that we still talk about her. Mm-hmm. Modest clothing women. Remember Paul. 1 Corinthians 8.13 doesn't have a thing to do with clothes, but I think it's the best verse. If meat caused my brother to offend, I'll eat no meat while the earth stands. That is the spirit. Be cheerful about it. We're not going to, we're not going to ask you to wear anything that we don't have to have. And we don't have the problem. You have the problem. We're just asking you to do what the Bible teaches. Flirting by a woman should be obviously understood. Teach, teach your young girls not to touch. They don't, you don't need to touch a guy. I don't care if he's got a pretty watch and you want to fondle it and hold his hand. You don't need to touch him. You don't need to play with his clothes. You don't need to touch him. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Mental adultery is equal to adultery. If you have anything in your life tempting you to mental adultery, tear it and rip it out of your life. The violent are the ones that enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible told us that the harlots went into it before the scribes and the Pharisees. They violently changed their lives. And we're not going to allow any divorce that are not for biblical reasons and very severe in this church because... There's, no, there's no, going to be no legalized adultery in this church either. Amen. Do not despise adulterers in your thinking unless you're free from the Lord Jesus Christ's expanded definition. Do not think of yourself highly in God's sight until you're free from fantasies, defrauding, and any related sin. Do not presume that your worship of God is accepted when you have stolen pleasure even mentally or you've deprived someone else of pleasure or you're causing someone else to be tempted. You're guilty of the seventh commandment. Let us all consider the great day of judgment when we'll give an account for every violation of this commandment, whether it's in thought, depriving, tempting, or any other act. This is the word of the Lord. God chose us to live in a very difficult time. The fashion industry in our world is bent entirely against what I have said. You women are going to have to work harder. You're going to have to work hard. Most of you are doing a great job. I'm a a pretty easy pastor on this subject, given the difficulty that it causes. God chose us for this generation. I wish every woman would be excited about the challenge. And I wish every man would be excited about the challenge. We, have, we are bombarded with more temptations to sin by, in this category than any other generation. But we can do it. The Lord's given us his word. He's given us conviction. And I hope he'll give us more conviction today. 
Let's make the changes in our lives, the right eye and the right hand, that would lead us to be more pleasing in his sight. May Jesus Christ be praised.